welcome to Valley Voices. My guest today is Andy Mueller, director of the Colorado River Water Conservation District in Glenwood Springs. Welcome, Andy Mueller. It's good to have you back on the show. Well, thank you, Amy. I really appreciate being here. It's always good to talk to you and your listeners. Well, I wanted to talk about something that's on everybody's mind, and that's water uh, in the Colorado River. And I have a few questions for you. But first of all, can you give us sort of a brief state of the river? Sure. I I wish I could give you some positive news about the river. Um, uh, Unfortunately, the Colorado River and its tributaries within our state are uh, experiencing really extreme uh, low flows and high temperatures uh, popping up throughout Western Colorado and, and the entire river system. So we're we're seeing some really negative impacts on every uh, aspect of life, from uh, fish life to agricultural water supplies, urban water supplies, and uh, the environment in general. So it's it's a really tough year for us. It's um, just piled on top of a, uh, a series of hard years, hard, hot, dry years. So it's getting pretty discouraging for many of us, I think. Discouraging. Why do you use that word? Well, I I think that we're seeing the impacts in real time of uh, climate change in the Colorado River Basin. And um, I think that, you know, for many years, it's been a theoretical concept to to many of us that, you know, we we understood that climate change was happening, but I, I think that people didn't necessarily see uh, at least not in their face, the, the immediate impacts. And um, a series of hot, dry years where the soil in our uh, Colorado River Basin has just been robbed of moisture as well as decreases in precipitation and, and snowpack have really uh, cumulatively led to a situation where we are today in the Colorado River system, which uh, has our uh, our rivers flowing lower than than they have in decades, and uh, frankly, our, our our storage facilities that were designed to help us through cyclical drought are cracking at their foundations. Uh, so we're we're seeing some pretty pretty significant concerns, uh, immediate concerns arising among folks in the water community. Well, before we talk about Lake Powell and Lake Mead, can you give us a picture of the over forty million? Uh, people who uh, use water from the Colorado River. I mean, 40 million is a big number, but it's just a number. I'm wondering if you can give us more of a detail of who exactly uses this river. Sure. Uh, I would I would start with the fact that the Colorado River has its headwaters, um, you know, in, in primarily three states, and, and if you count a little bit of New Mexico, four. But really, if you look at the uh, the biggest water production zone for the Colorado River, it's on the west slope of uh, Colorado. It's it's the territory that the Colorado River District covers, as well as a smaller area down in the southwest of our state that's tributary to the San Juan River. Um, within the western Colorado, we produce about 70% of the average uh, flow of the Colorado River, of the entire river. And, and again, if you picture the Colorado, it runs from the Continental Divide in Rocky Mountain National Park, and it's supposed to flow all the way to the Sea of Cortez. Um, it goes through and, and provides water for seven states and two countries. Um, and it it has done a, a remarkable job in, a, in an arid climate of doing that over the last 100 years. And, and during that 100 years, we, we've seen 
um, the population really boom. And, you know, we're experiencing population growth on the West Slope, uh, clearly, and, and here in the Roaring Fork. But when you look at um, the population explosion on the Front Range, it, it's even more apparent. And technically, the Front Range of Colorado is not in the Colorado River Basin, but we have over 25 diversions that go from the West Slope the Colorado River Basin into the Front Range. And so cities like Denver, uh, Denver gets 60% of its water supply on an average year from the Colorado River. The city of Colorado Springs gets about 70%. The city of Aurora, the state's second largest city, gets uh, close to 60%. Uh, Cities like Greeley, Boulder, Fort Collins, uh, uh, Pueblo, they all depend upon uh, water from the Colorado River to keep their populations uh, keep water in their pipes and, and in their fire hydrants. And so it, uh, within our state, it's not just the folks that, uh, like us who live on within these drainages. It's, it's everybody in the state. When you go further outside our state, you, you can look at Wyoming. Uh, the Green River has its uh, headwaters in the uh, mountains of Wyoming. It, it feeds uh, agriculture and folks on the western side of Wyoming. Uh, Salt Lake City and, and the Wasatch Front uh, diverts quite a bit of water out of the Green River to keep that system and those folks uh, with water. Uh, even Park City, uh, Utah, uh, uses water from the Colorado for for their people. Uh, you continue down, and, and uh, St. George, Utah, currently uses water out of the Virgin River, uh, which is tributary to the Colorado, but it's it's one of the fastest-growing areas in the United States. They would like more Colorado River water. Uh, you go further down to Arizona and um, the, the city of Phoenix and Tucson, um, as well as all of the, the surrounding sprawl, Scottsdale, all depend upon the Colorado River for their drinking water, for their agriculture. The, the city of Las Vegas is 100%. Or I should say it used to be 100%. It's probably closer today to, to about 90% reliant on the Colorado River, um, even as far down as San Diego and uh, Los Angeles, uh, a significant portion of their water, as much some years as as 40 to 50 percent of their water supply comes from the Colorado River. Uh, If you picture those 40 million people, and in addition to which, there's over 4 million acres of irrigated agriculture, and it's it's the fruits and vegetables that we all eat year-round, whether they're locally produced in the North Fork near Paonia and Hotchkiss, or beef from our own valleys and uh, here and potatoes and onions and corn from from Olathe and Grand Junction, the wine that we produce in in the Grand Valley, down to the Imperial Valley in in California where all of our uh, winter vegetables come from. And that's not just here in Colorado, but that's much of our country relies upon uh, the vegetables that are grown there. So it's it's a huge um, water source for a tremendous area and, and a, a large economic engine for the country and, and frankly, the world. Um, depends on this Colorado River to function uh, well. Um, I don't know if that helps, Amy, to kind of yes. describe. Yes, that helps a lot. It's a great picture. You know, I was just reading today that a mega casino has opened in Vegas um, with seven swimming pools, and that's, you know, it's a giant complex, casino complex. And, you know, I, I also read a couple of months ago that uh, the city government of Las Vegas uh, wants people to cut back on lawn watering a certain percentage, but that's not supposed to start for another couple of years. 
Um, and I just think that mega casino, that seems sort of silly, opening during a, you know an unprecedented drought. And I guess my question to go along with this and to go along with what you were talking about in terms of population growth, will water or the lack thereof limit um, uh, the growth in Colorado and the West? You know, that, that's an excellent question. And I would say that um, it's kind of that, that question of a carrying capacity. Have we have we reached the carrying capacity of the Colorado River? And um, certainly we've reached the carrying capacity in maintaining our lifestyles in the way that we're used to in the Colorado River. And um, you, you mentioned lawn watering and, and mega casinos. I, I do want to say you know, Vegas is an easy target because it's a city in the middle of uh, an absolute barren desert with uh, lush oases of, of fountains and pools. Um, I would point out the Gaylord uh, new construction. There's a large facility that was opened in Aurora. I think you can see it as you drive up um, Canyon Boulevard to uh, DIA. If you're flying out of Denver, you'll see that large, enormous building that was uh, created. They too have multiple swimming pools and incredible outside irrigated uh, landscapes. Um, that's watered with Colorado River water. Uh, so it's, we can't just point fingers at the city of Las Vegas. I, I, I think it's a fair target. But if we're going to carry, if we're going to have more people moving into this river basin, which I think uh, is, is almost impossible to say that we, we will not have them, our lifestyles are going to change. Just using Vegas as an example, they have uh, been paying for, for years, paying their residents to yank out uh, uh, lawns, um, irrigated turf grass. Uh, they lobbied the, the city of Las Vegas and the Southern Nevada Water Authority that provides water to them, lobbied the Las Vegas legislature to pass a, a law that prohibits any watering of grass that's not used. So picture, um, and, and you can do this in western Colorado really easy. You can picture it because we've all seen it. Uh, that's the medians that are irrigated. Um, that's the, the the tree lawns. That's the parking uh, lots that, that have irrigated grass around them. That's our, you, you drive to the Grand Junction Airport and you see the, the green lawns that no one ever walks on. So if you don't walk on it, you don't play on it, you don't use it, you shouldn't irrigate it. And that's, you know, Vegas has taken a very hard line on that. Quite frankly, we are going to see a need to have all of our jurisdictions uh, start requiring exactly that. Um, I, I think that it is, um, we can't just point fingers at others. We've got to look at our own water use. And, um, you know, let's let's be frank about it. Here in the headwaters, Every time you turn on your outdoor irrigation, uh, you are taking water out of the Roaring Fork system. And we're anticipating in the Roaring Fork extremely high temperatures this year, fish kill, uh, fishing prohibitions uh, imposed by uh, Colorado Parks and Wildlife. Um, We've avoided them so far. Um, but I can tell you that, that in the upper Colorado this year, so that's the area, if you will, below Granby, um, all the way down to Dot Zero. Um, I just was corresponding with uh, Colorado Parks and Wildlife about fish kills that have occurred in the last week up there. Um, you know, our agency operates a reservoir up there. We voluntarily stopped filling it at, at a, to great expense, and we started releasing water, uh, cold water, out of the bottom of the reservoir, trying to cool the, the river and save fish. And we've 
been pushing Trans Mountain diverters like Denver Water and Northern to do the same, um, to stop the export of water for this year because we see it as so hot and so dry. Um, and, and we're going to see that in the fork. And so I think your listeners are primarily in, in this area. The answer is go out and turn off your irrigation. Um, this is not a year where anybody should be planting a turf grass lawn or anybody should be worrying about it. If you happen to have a turf grass lawn, remember, that stuff is actually drought resistant. Don't water it this year. It'll come back next year. Um, but but these are these are long-term problems. So I would say, you know, we all need to start designing our landscaping. We need our, our cities and uh, others to, to implement land use codes. I, I will also tell you we work with um, – uh, all of our agricultural producers on the West Slope, and we all depend on their food and, and local food and fiber production, but we also need them to use less water. And so uh, we're engaged in a lot of activities. We're, we're uh, improving on-farm delivery systems with sprinklers and piping uh, ditches and canals so that uh, we stop losing water to evaporation and seepage, um, encouraging uh, agricultural users to fallow ground that's marginal uh, in times like this so that they can uh, leave more water in the river and actually have sufficient water to irrigate and, and grow the food that they're growing. So it's all of us, uh, Amy, at this point that, that really need to step up and recognize that uh, we all have an impact on the river. Well, what about development along the tributaries like the Crystal River, the Roaring Fork River? You know, there's a, kind of a almost a construction boom in Carbondale, and, you know, in other places along the Roaring Fork River and the Crystal River. And I I keep wondering, where is the water going to come from to support this development? Am I crazy in thinking that? No, I, I don't think you're crazy. I, I think I think that we can develop smarter and wiser. And, and so, and, and I'll use Denver as an example, even though we we oftentimes point, again, point fingers at, at, at our um, uh, colleagues on the front range. Um, Denver today is consuming the same amount of water that they did in 1990. Um, their population has grown by a million and a half people during that time. Um, the reason they're able to do that is because the growth there is dense, so they're densifying, they're growing up, uh, they're not growing out, they're not seeing the development of single-family homes on two to five-acre tracks. You know, if, if you're an apartment dweller or a, or a townhome dweller, uh, you consume and use a lot less water, um, and, and in fact, remarkably less water. So what do we need to see here in the Roaring Fork in terms of development is uh, let's focus on the apartment buildings. Let's focus on the condos. Let's create a quality of life where we have open public spaces and parks, but that we're living in a, in a more sustainable manner. Before we continue, I just want to remind listeners that you're listening to Valley Voices, my guest today is Andy Mueller, who is the director of the Colorado River Water Conservation District. And I'm really grateful that you're here with me today, uh, Andy. Um, we've been talking about uh, carrying capacity and development along the Colorado River and along the tributaries. And Andy Mueller, when you say that we have to change our lifestyle as we know it, can you give us some more examples of that? Sure. 
You know, I, I think maybe the, the question is, why do I say that? And, and, it, and I don't mean to change your question, Amy, but why, That's okay. why is that? And I think it's helpful for people to maybe get a, a, a picture of what's happening in this river system that we live in. And, and remember, it's a, it's a holistic system that starts in Colorado and should end at the Sea of Cortez. And so, it's, so the, the, the reality is what we do impacts uh, everybody else on the river and the river itself and the, and the animals that depend on it. So if you just look at... Um, the Colorado River, yes, we have a, a, a significant population boom going on, which we already addressed. But, but more importantly, perhaps, is what's happening to the water supply within the river. Um, what, what we've seen, uh, you know, there's some really good science that's been developed in the last five years on the relationship between rise in temperatures and the decrease in the flow of the Colorado River. And for every one degree Fahrenheit rise in average temperature, it is documented that we are losing between 3.2 and 9% of the river's flow. And so, you know, it sounds somewhat abstract, and I I maybe can point out that um, since 1895, between 1895 and 2018, when one of these studies was performed, NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Agency, tracks average temperatures county by county. And in western Colorado, within our district, including Pickens County and Garfield County, we have seen an increase in temperatures anywhere between 2.5 degrees to 4.3 degrees in in Fahrenheit uh, temperature rise since 1895. Um, if, if you take that rise and you multiply it by 3 or 9%, um, we have lost, and, and by the way, this is also then shows up in our hydrographs and our tracking of the flows in the river, we have actually seen a decrease in the flow of the river in a, in a really significant manner. And, and, you know, we're talking 20 30% decrease in the flow. Um, and I think, let me say this, it, it, it's accelerating uh, over the last 20 years in terms of what, what's happening with temperature and therefore what's happening with the decrease in our water supply. Since, I think, about 1906, our running average in total water production in, in the river is measured in uh, acre feet, right? So an acre foot is, right. a, is a foot of water, one foot deep, the size of a football field, right? And so it's measured in acre feet. And if you measure it, um, the average over that, that long term has been about 15.8 million acre feet per year flowing in the Colorado River. Since 2000, the average has been um, about 12.6 million acre feet. So, so we've lost in that 20-year period, we are 3 million acre feet below the average. Um, what I believe we're going to see here, given the, the, the incredible temperatures we had in the last three years, that, that as we get that data in, and, and it takes a while to compile it all, I believe we're going to see those flows dip below 12 million acre feet a year. And the problem is, is that that our system on the river is is a political and legal system, and we've actually divided up about 17 and a half million acre feet, and so we've over allocated the water in in the system, and that's between all the government agencies and the states, the two countries. We've got 17 and a half million acre feet allocated, and and people are trying to use that much, and we actually only have today probably closer to 12 million acre feet in that river, and so. We've literally, in our own lifetimes, seen a decrease in flow that will cause us all to have to really reduce our water use if we're going to continue to enjoy 
um, healthy rivers, if we're going to continue to enjoy recreational uh, amenities. And, and frankly, uh, some towns and, and uh, areas are concerned this year about sustainable drinking water for their own communities. So it, it really is a, a difficult situation. Yes, it's quite frightening, actually. But I think it's important information for people to have. And just in the few minutes that we have left, I would like to take a look at um, what's going on with Lake Powell and Lake Mead. Lake Powell, the levels are now, if I'm correct, at 3,560 feet. And there is a a threshold of concern, is what I call it, at 3,525 feet. What happens when Lake Powell hits 3,525 feet above sea level? Well, what, what that means is that what we would expect um, that comes perilously close to losing uh, the power production of the Glen Canyon Dam. Um, and so if you picture it, there are ten towers or tubes uh, underneath the reservoir that can pick up water and run it through the power turbines, and which generates cheap, renewable electricity for all of us in western Colorado, as well as Utah, uh, Wyoming, um, and, and, and the entire basin. Um, we're already, I can tell you, I was on a call this morning talking about this, we're already uh, looking at about a 30% decline in that power production out of Lake Powell. When it hits 35-25, they're very concerned about the um, what's called cavitation in those pipes and turbines. At 34.90, so if it drops to that, we would expect to see power production completely stop. Um, And uh, then there becomes a question of how much water we can get out of the reservoir to keep the lower Colorado River flowing just because of the design of that dam. It really wasn't anticipated that they would ever see a level like this. And and I want to say this. I mean, Lake Powell and Lake Mead are major storage reservoirs that are supposed to balance the system out over uh, multi-year cyclical droughts. And and frankly, they've done a really good job since uh, we've been in this historic drought since really the year 2000. So for 21 years, they've, they've kept the system going. Lake Powell is at its lowest level today that it has been since it was filled in, in the late 1960s. The Hoover Dam and, and Lake Mead, right outside of Vegas, is at its lowest level since it was built in the 1930s. This year, the flow into Lake Powell is predicted to be 23% of average. So like over 75% less water? Yes, 75% less than average. That's exactly correct. And that's that's really, uh, I, I mean, I think that's probably should be the biggest red flag for everybody in that we just aren't seeing the water production that Basin is used to, that we're all used to. And so that level in Lake Powell is just precipitously dropping. In fact, it surprised even the Bureau of Reclamation that runs those reservoirs. They issue a report in um, usually they issue a report on April 1st. It's called a 24-month study. And then they usually don't issue that again until August. Well, this year they issued another one in June, just recently. And what they found is between April and June, um, their predictions for inflow during the, the runoff season this year dropped by over 70%, by 1.4 million acre feet. They just said it's not going to materialize this year. It's not It's not coming in. Um, And that's where they predicted in this June report 
that we're going to see that critical level of 3525 affecting the power production, we're going to see that get almost certainly, I should say, it's about a 91% probability that we will see that in 2023, we will actually hit 3525. And so that's a that's something that many in the water community thought that we would have another eight years or so uh, before we saw these levels materialize if this climate change-driven drought uh, were to continue. This year has been so severe that we're now seeing those predictions occurring within the next year or two. So it's really a, a really significant uh, number. The, the critical levels down in Lake Mead, it's obviously lower in elevation. Those Critical levels are at 1075, so uh, 1,075 feet above sea level, and then 1,050. We're in the same three-year period expecting to race right through that 1075 level down to 1050, most likely, I should say. And with that will come mandatory reductions of water in the uh, state of Arizona, in Nevada, and in California. Uh, Arizona, having the junior rights, are looking at losing over 600 thousand acre feet a year as soon as uh, 2023. Um, that's a huge hit for them. It's essentially turning off their diversions out of the Colorado River uh, for Phoenix, Scottsdale, and Tucson, and making them entirely dependent upon groundwater if that occurs. Well, I wish we had some good news. We're going to have to leave it there. Um, we're <laughs> out of time. And um, hopefully sometime soon we can maybe do a part two because, you know, I have tons of questions, uh, you know, about the domino effect, but we don't have time to go into it now. Andy Mueller, director of the Colorado River Water Conservation District in Glenwood, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Sure. Thank you, Amy. Sorry to bring such depressing news to the airwaves. Well, you know, it's sort of the way it is right now. It is. It is. Well, good to talk to you, Amy. Thank All right. you very much. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to Valley Voices on KDNK. I'm Amy Haddon-Marsh. 